Welcome to the MT Mindfulness Podcast. My name is Bob Chang, and today I have Brendalyn Batchelor joining me. Uh, Brendalyn is a mindfulness teacher, licensed professional counselor, spiritual director, working one-on-one with people. So welcome, Brendalyn. Thanks, Bob. It's great to be here. Um, so, Brendan, just um, share with the viewers in terms of, you know, how did your spiritual journey uh, come about in terms of uh, what makes you who you are today? Okay. Well, um, I began in a very um, conservative uh, Christian tradition until I was about 10 years old. And then I sort of went to nothing for a number of years. And then um, in my probably early 20s, I found a a spiritual path called Unity. And it's um, a very liberal, very open, progressive, positive uh, spiritual path that really honors all traditions. And I think of Unity as an interspiritual path where you're not limited to just one set of of practices or whatever, you can really uh, create your own. So I've been, I went from studying it, trying to apply it into my life to be a better person, and then uh, actually became a minister. And so I served as a minister here in Santa Fe, New Mexico for 28 years. Wow. And uh, left, uh, retired from the pulpit uh, two years ago and have really been enjoying uh, doing my unified mindfulness work, uh, getting certified as a teacher and trainer, and along with my, you know, being a professional counselor and spiritual director. So yeah. I sort of, uh, I love to support people in exploring their own spiritual journey and creating it in a way that supports them the most. And, um, you know, when you said you started, um, you know, when you were 10, um, what kind of, uh, was it a Christianity or what? Um... Yes, until I was 10 years old. So from birth to 10, I yeah. was, um, my family was in the uh, Free Will Baptist Church okay. in Jones County, North Carolina. And did that um, affected your beliefs and thinking at that time when you were 10? Well, I had some kind of humorous stories that happened. Um, I I took my what's called an altar call uh, without my parents' knowledge or permission, uh, along with uh, my brother and two of my cousins. And I was, you know, I think I was 10, and I just went up to the altar when they did. So then I had to be baptized and all this. And my mother was very upset with me. And I remember to this day her shaking her finger over the front seat at me in the back seat and saying, you know, uh, your daddy and I are no longer responsible for your sins. You're now responsible for them. And I was like, oh, my God, what have I done? You know, what was I thinking? And then I had full immersion baptism, and I, I didn't know how to swim. That was scary, even though you don't have to swim when you're being baptized. It was still frightening to be dunked underwater in a yeah. lake. And then um, we were celebrating 
this uh, our baptism, I guess, and all the family was over. And we were playing. My cousins, and I were playing cards, and one of my cousins says. Uh, we were saying how much fun it was. And one of my cousins says, yeah, it's a shame. It's a sin. And I was like, it's a sin. So I'd already sinned, you know, and, yes. and I just, um, I just got very upset because it seemed like everything, you know, dancing was a sin. All this stuff was a sin. And I was now responsible for myself. Yeah. And I, I thought, you know, I tried so hard to be good. And it seemed like every time I was bad. And I finally decided that the only way I could be good would probably be to marry a preacher. Right. You know, it never occurred to me I could become one because there weren't women preachers in that yes. in that denomination. So it's interesting that later on I became a minister. So at what point did you decide, actually, you know, I'm going to stop, um, you know, from 10 onwards, did you say, okay, you know, this, this is just a bit too much? Well, um, my family moved to Guam. Yeah. 9,000 miles from where we lived in North Carolina. And we lived on an Air Force base. And now that my parents weren't under the pressure of the family, they quit going to church. Okay. And I threw what we call in North Carolina a hissy fit because I thought we would burn in hell if we didn't go to church. So yeah. um, they, my dad told me, we will go next Sunday, but we're not going today. So the following Sunday, we went to the First Baptist Church in Aganya, Guam. And on the way home, it was my dad that looked in the rearview mirror at me and said, um, we will bring you every Sunday, but we're not going. Okay. You won't be going back. Okay. And my brother said, well, then I'm not going either. And I said, well, if y'all aren't going, I'm not going. <laughs> <laughs> and we didn't, you know, lightning didn't strike us. Nothing, yeah. nothing bad happened to us. Yeah. But I think I always had a longing in my heart because yeah. um, when I graduated from high school, I was dating a guy and his family was um, Missouri Synod Lutheran, which is also a very conservative Christian denomination. Yes. And so I started going to that church and, and uh, went to classes and became confirmed or whatever. And uh, then they had me go out and um, I signed up for the stewardship team and not knowing that meant I had to go out and ask people to make donations to the church. And okay. I was just mortified. <laughs> So that didn't last long. <laughs> and fortunately, I was relieved because I moved to Hawaii, which is yeah. what I had planned to do after I graduated from high school. And I wound up going to work for the U.S. federal government, and I worked for three years. And then I moved to Hawaii. And it was yeah. while I was in Hawaii that um, I was trying to sell Amway. And I never sold more than one box of soap, but somebody there mentioned that there was a church that was like going to a Dale Carnegie course once a week. Okay. And my ears perked up. So I think there was this longing in my yeah. heart for something spiritual. And it was unity on the slopes of Diamond Head. Yeah. So, man, I was there the next Sunday, and I couldn't believe it. It was so different. They said we were good, yeah. you know, that we might not be acting good, but that we were inherently good. Yeah. And I just knew that what they were saying was true, even though I'd never heard it before. Something in my soul yeah. just really resonated with it. Yeah. 
So that's how I found Unity. And it wasn't for another 10 years um, that I started actually taking classes to be a Unity uh, licensed teacher. And then in 1994, I was asked to be the the minister or spiritual leader of our church yeah. when our ministers left. And it was a trial. It's like two months. Give it a shot. Yeah. And they wanted me and I wanted them after two months. So I went through the program. It took me five years to get ordained on the job training ordained. And uh, so I served in that role for 28 years. It was wow. Wonderful. Wow. It, it's, it sounds like there was this spiritual uh, longing uh, and you found the spiritual belonging. Right. Yeah. Um, and how did you come um, um, in terms of the mindfulness and meditation aspect? You know, how did that kind of tied in uh, with, with that journey? Well, I think it was in... Uh, early 2000, 2005, six, I uh, hired someone to be my spiritual director. And a spiritual director is actually a companion on the spiritual journey. Someone that you can talk about what's going on in your life in the context of spirituality and what is the divine within calling you to do in this situation or why has this situation come into your life. So when I started working with her and she taught me centering prayer, which uh, basically you have a sacred word that you come up with on your own. And that's your sort of, you know, if not a mantra, you, you repeat it anytime you find your mind wandering, you go back to the sacred word. Yeah. And, um, it's a lovely practice. And the idea was to practice 20 minutes twice a day. And I did that for, um, I don't know, quite a while. And then at one point I, um, heard about Vipassana. Yeah. And these 10 day silent retreats with Goinka. Yes. And so I decided to give it a try. When I first heard of it, I thought, why would anybody go anywhere where they couldn't talk, no eye contact, no reading, no writing, no listening yeah. to music? It was just like, I thought people would be crazy. What, but what I, convinced you? Sorry. <laughs> what convinced well, it was you? several years later after I heard about it that suddenly yeah. it came to my mind. Okay. And so I researched it and I signed up for a retreat. Okay. So I went to this 10 day retreat and it was really life changing because I had a, a cathartic experience, both physically and um, emotionally, psychologically, uh, in which when we sat with strong determination, I was in a lot of physical pain, but to sit with strong determination meant you were not supposed to voluntarily move. And up to that point, I'd been like a fish out of water, but that was our direction that day not to move. And um, I was in this excruciating pain and all of a sudden I had a flashback of um, an incident that happened in the eighth grade in which someone had jumped me from behind to beat me up. Yeah. And somehow I came out on top and I was declared the winner and I was so in my little eighth grade ego being excited about it that apparently I repressed the feelings. Okay. So here I am in this meditation hall 40 years later in this flash before my eyes of this incident. And I thought to myself, Oh, all this pain must be 
anger. And it's like this voice said, no, this is rage. And I went, oh, this is rage. And as soon as I named it, all the pain just dissolved. Wow. It just slowly like melted away. And from then on, I've been able to sit without moving. If I decide to do that, you know, yeah. when I'm sitting, I could sit without back support. So clearly there was some part of me that was uh, afraid somebody was always looking uh, to make sure nobody could jump me from behind. Yeah. So it was really life changing. And so I did Vipassana. I went to seven of those 10 day boot camps <laughs> over the years, not every year, but over a period of yeah. maybe 12, 15 years. And then um, I decided I was bored with scanning my body and doing the breath Anapana. So I uh, took uh, transcendental meditation and they gave me a mantra. And uh, the, now Vipassana, he wanted you to, to sit for two hours a day. Yeah. which uh, I would do for three months. And then that was it. I couldn't do it anymore. And uh, so I go back to 20 minutes and do Vipassana, but I, I learned transcendental meditation and I did that for several years, 20 minutes, twice a day. And I got, I just would get bored with it. So I yeah. go between transcendental meditation and Vipassana and maybe some centering prayer or whatever. And then um, in December of 2017, a friend was visiting and she said, oh, I want to show you this book that a friend gave me for Christmas. And she handed me Shenzhen Young's uh, The Science of Enlightenment. Yeah. And I took it and she said, oh, I know he and his ex-wife. They used to come to our center in Santa Fe when I was there. And I wondered what happened to him. And here I get this book as a gift. Yeah, And I opened the book and it just grabbed me. It was yeah. just like, here's somebody, he's explaining the science of enlightenment. Yeah, And I was just hooked. Yeah, And I pursued, you know, looking at uh, some of his YouTubes and I found a YouTube on strong determination. Yes. And it was like, he explained what had happened to me. Yes. You know, back way back in the first uh, Vipassana course yeah. in a way that, I mean, I knew I had released something that was repressed, but somehow I got it when I heard Shenzhen explain it. Yeah. So then, you know, I was hooked and, and within a few years I started, you know, I took the core class, the online yeah. free class, and then I took foundations of pathways and compass. And Yeah, I think I that's the, the thing I love about Shenzhen. He's able to provide you know, the context and all the details for one to kind of make sense and integrate. Mm -hmm. uh, right. it. Um, yeah. Um, uh, so, so you took a deep dive into unified mindfulness then. Yeah. And what was interesting about it is I started my deep dive. I think um, probably it was in 2019 that yeah. I started taking these courses because I remember I was in pathways in the summer of 2020 and it was during that pathways that I had a dream in which I realized it was time for me to retire from the pulpit. Yeah. And so I gave my one year notice <laughs> to the board and congregation. And then meanwhile, I finish up pathways. I do my practicum of the eight week. In fact, I did five of the eight week courses before I retired and then compass opened up. And so it seems like it was just like, 
as as my life in unity was phasing out unified mindfulness filled the gap yeah and it was really a, a blessing because in unity our ethics is that when you're when you have been the minister of a congregation and a new you you leave you have to really leave yeah in order to give a new minister time you know the opportunity to really establish themselves yeah and so I had gone from the fear of, oh, my gosh, I've been part of this congregation. At that point, even though I was minister 28 years, I had another eight years ahead before that where I was in the congregation. So it's like I was going to lose my family, you know. Yeah. And but Unified Mindfulness filled the gap. And, you know, I have a morning sit group every day with some of our UM folks. And we sit for an hour and a half every morning and they've become my family. And yeah. then you were in my study group and compass and, and I've just made all these new relationships. And even though we're at a distance, it amazes me how deeply I feel the connection. Yeah. Um, are you able to share, you know, what your daily spiritual practice is? Well, I wake up, uh, I get up at, at le no later than 6.20 in the morning okay. so that I can ring the bell at 6.30. Okay. So uh, I, I, I'm the bell ringer. I, the, I official, like that. the official bell ringer. <laughs> I'm the, I'm, I guess I'm the sit leader. Yeah. And I sort of inherited that job when someone who had to go back to work after COVID could no longer do it. Yeah. And I consider it to be the greatest blessing because I have enough sense of responsibility and compliance that I need to be there yeah. to ring the bell. You yeah. know, it's not that the sit couldn't happen without me, but somehow I feel responsible. Yes. So it gets me out of bed on those mornings when I really don't want to get up. Yeah. And the nice thing about being retired from a full-time job is I can go back to bed after the sit. Yeah. <laughs> if I'm really tired, I tell myself, yes. just go ahead and get up. You can go back to bed later. Yes. So we sit for an hour and a half. And sometimes um, during that hour and a half, I used to do a full set of Julia Cameron's morning pages, if anyone's yeah. familiar with the artist way. And I would write three full pages of just total stream of consciousness writing without lifting the pen and writing. I don't know what to write if I didn't know what to write until I got three pages. And that takes me 45 minutes. Yeah. So some days I'm not willing to give up 45 minutes of the silence sit to do that, but it's a wonderful practice. And I actually, you know, uh, created a little process, shortened it to one page, which Julia, who's a friend of mine, said, you have to tell people if they only do one pages, it's not morning pages. <laughs> <laughs> so it's not official morning pages, but I think it helps people clear their mind. Okay. So I call it pen cleanse. Yes. You know, to use the pen to cleanse the mind and sort of dump out anything that might be distracting uh, during the sit. And so then that only takes about 15 minutes. So, uh, and then I guess it was um, in February. Oh, sh should I say after I took MDMA, I had a psychedelic assisted therapy session yeah. with a licensed th therapist yeah. who uh, came to my home and 
anyway, it was very life-changing in terms of uh, expressing emotions that I had always known about intellectually, yeah. but this, I actually expressed them. And after that, I started doing something I'm, I call like somatic writing, okay. where um, with the sensory clarity that we get in Unified Mindfulness, I would just feel sensations of an emotional nature, feel in. Yeah. And as I explored them, I would write exactly what I was feeling. It feels okay. tied. It's here is where it is, really describing it in detail. And then suddenly it would start speaking to me. Oh, wow. And I would, or I would be getting thoughts about it yeah. or whatever. Yeah. And apparently um, I was tapping into what internal family systems therapy calls uh, my internal family system. Okay. So that was very, I went pretty deep. And in fact, I went, um, I felt like I was, had gone as far as I could go on my own. So I actually hired an IFS therapist and I've been yeah. working with her and she's able to help me go even deeper because I've got that objective third person there that's, you know, coaching me, could, if you will. Could you just, uh, if it's okay to just share about what the interpersonal family is, because I, I don't. Kind okay. of understand it's that, yeah. um internal family yeah. okay. systems and okay. so what it is it uh, was developed by uh, a guy named richard schwartz in the 70s and i always thought family systems was when you brought the whole family in for therapy and i wasn't interested in that yeah. so i never paid attention i didn't know there was something called internal family systems okay. and the idea is that we have all these um sub personalities that aren't of a pathological nature, like a split personality or uh, multiples or anything like that. But we do have these sub personalities from our childhood that are still causing some of, uh, you know, they're still speaking up and raising their head and causing challenges for yes. us. So I've been, uh, so you learn to develop a dialogue with them yeah. and then self enters, which is your divine nature source, whatever you want to call it. Yeah. And so um, you work between the part and your higher self and, you know, your current self. And there's, there's all these different sub personalities. Some of them are called protectors because they're there to protect you. Yeah. Some of them are called exiles because they're really badly wounded and yeah. exiled. And then firefighters are when they, sh they sort of show up like in an addiction or something like that. Yeah. So it's a way of unburdening all of them yeah. so that they can, um, you know, be healed. Yeah. It's very powerful. So I'm sort of studying it the same as the same time that I'm, um, you know, in fact, the, the, the way they train therapists in IFS is for them to go through the IFS therapy. Yeah. So I'm sort of doing that right now and already working with some people. To uh, would it be okay for you to share some, you know, powerful moments for uh, um, from your experience. Okay. Well, there's so many. Um, <laughs> well, I'll tell you one that's kind of um, uh, maybe a little uh, lighter than some of the others. But uh, I have a part that I called um, the sheriff. Yes. Okay. 
And uh, if you've ever seen Longmire, this U.S. show, I don't know if you've ever seen it, but there's this uh, deputy sheriff, and she wears these really tight, form-fitting uniforms that are very, uh, you know, you know, very sexy and yes, voluptuous yeah. and all that. So for some reason, I got the picture of, of her <laughs> as the sheriff. And that's that part of me that wants everybody to follow the rules. Yeah. And I'm going to set them straight if they're not following the rules. So that's probably why I'm on the board of trustees of my, our board of directors of my homeowners association. And I was a sexual harassment, uh, investigator and trainer, tra awareness trainer for all these years. And I remember at one point when I was doing that, I said, I'm tired of being the sheriff. Yeah. But here I find myself, I'm still in the role of being the sheriff. I'm getting, trying to hold people accountable to do whatever. And so I, I started working with that part and the, the part revealed that it was very tired, very yeah. tired. It was a really hard job to try to control other people because you really can't do that anyway. And yeah. so it just, and, and I, I just heard myself saying, or it's saying, I'm just taking off this badge and I'm, t and this uniform's really tight and I'm just yes. going to take it off. <laughs> and so it's like, and I'm going to burn the, and we burn the job description of sheriff. Yeah. You know, we yeah. just put a little, we have something in unity called a burning bowl ceremony. We put there in the burning bowl and let it go. And then you have to say, well, what's going to replace it? Right. Yes. And yeah. so it was replaced by Moo Moo Mama. Right. And I call it, I said, I just want to be in some loose clothing. So the only thing I can think about from, you know, from my time in Hawaii was a moo moo. Yes. So okay. I have moo moo mama. My picture of her is that she's out by the pool in the shade, of course, so she doesn't get sunburned. Yes. And um, she just is kicked back. And, and a friend of mine said this phrase a number of years ago, and I love it. She said, uh, let go and let them. And so that's Moo Moo Mama's mantra, to okay. let go and let them. Let somebody okay. else worry about it. It's not my yeah. job anymore. Yes. yes. So that's an example of a unburdening this part and letting it transform into something a lot more yes. healthy. Wow. Okay. Um, and what, what other kind of spiritual practices um, in, throughout your day do you have? Um. Well, I mean, 90 minutes every morning is quite a bit of time. Yeah. So, you know, it's mainly the writing and the silent sits. Uh, and then when I'm, of course, you know, one of the things I love about Unified Mindfulness is we can do it off the cushion. Yeah. And so whether I'm walking the dog or I'm um, uh, driving my car or standing in line at the grocery store there's there's you know every there's every opportunity all day long to practice mindfulness because really being mindful is just being present to the moment yeah and the way we're present to the moment is through our five senses yeah. and of course in, in unified mindfulness we say it's you know, see hear feel but feel also includes taste and smell yeah. so that that the body's right here, right now. The senses are right here, right now. And whereas our mind can be in the past, in the future, all over the place. Yeah. But if we, you know, so I love that I can just be sitting in traffic or standing in line and, and just be present to what I'm seeing, hearing, feeling, instead of being upset that the line's not moving fast enough. Yeah. Or whatever. Yeah. 
Wow. And there's a couple of yeah. other practices I do. Uh, one of them I call the don't know altar. And it's based on this, you know, one of our spiritual practices in our, our techniques in Unified Mindfulness is, uh, you know, the idea of, of having equanimity with not knowing, yeah. with don't know. So I sort of incorporated it into this technique I used as a minister when I was doing pastoral counseling. And I would, um, you know, people would want to let go of something, but they didn't know how. So I created this little ritual where, you know, I, I, I would have you create an altar in your mind, imagination, yeah. and then take all the situation you were dealing with and all your thoughts and feelings about it and place it on the altar. And, and so I, I made it, I don't know altar. So anytime I don't know the answer to something, whether it's going to be where I'm going to go on vacation or when I was going to retire, any of these things, I put it on the altar and I know that the, you know, the universe sources is knows what to do and yeah. is working it out and that whatever I need to do, I will be given guidance to do. Yeah. And, and before we put it on the altar, we do process it. So it's not a spiritual bypass. Yeah. We're not just saying, okay, I'm going to put that on the altar, but we're actually feeling it, finding it in the body, listening to what it has to say for a while and then yeah. putting it on the altar. And so that's one of my, my uh, signature techniques I like to do. And the other one is, um, uh, relatively new. Uh, I think I came up with it in this past March. Uh, Shenzhen was interviewing me on the life practice program for um, word power. Yeah. And I was working on developing a retreat or whatever focused on uh, transforming suffering without spiritual bypassing. Yeah. And uh, anyway, all of it, I had this idea and that was to take our happiness grid and have it be a daily inventory. So for those who aren't familiar with it, the happiness grid basically has five columns where uh, of categories, uh, areas in our life in which we can feel happiness. Okay, if we can meet these. So the first one is release, relief from suffering. And the second one is increased fulfillment. The third one is self-knowledge or awareness and uh, insight. The fourth one is um, skill mastery in whatever area you're developing a skill. And the fifth one is connection, connection with source, with ourselves, with others. And I had this idea based on my 12-step work to why not do a daily inventory of how I've experienced these five areas. Yeah. And it came at a time when I was looking at the fact that I've, you know, I'm in the elder population nowadays. I just, I turned 74 this year and I realized that days were going by and they seem to go by a lot faster, <laughs> the older we get. And I wasn't, you know, I didn't think I was getting all the joy I, sh I could be getting out of yeah. it. And so this is a way that uh, it's wonderful. I do it every night before I go to sleep. I say, okay, where did I have relief from suffering today? Yeah. Where did I have increased fulfillment, insight, skill mastery, and um, 
connection. And I realized, wow, I had a pretty good day today. Yeah. You know, it's, it's like it in the moment, I may not have experienced that moment of happiness, but I can do it at the end of the day. Yeah. So that's my newest spiritual practice. And I think that's such a powerful technique because, you know, a lot of time we don't notice these things unless mm-hmm. we can reflect and, and think about things. And then we, we can see that these these might be happening um, throughout the day and really kind of appreciate um, those things. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. One thing I wanted to uh, kind of go back on is, you know, you mentioned about the um, the writing, um, how the morning pages. Um, how did you come about um, your interest with morning pages? I mean, have you always been interested in writing or um, so? Yeah, I'm, I'm curious about that. Well, I hope Julia Cameron, no, she actually knows this. I was going to say, I hope she doesn't listen to this. But uh, when she moved back to to Santa Fe a number of years ago, um, she called Unity, our our ministry, and asked if she could use our space and rent our space to do a workshop. And I was yeah. like, oh, absolutely, you know. And so I got to know her personally because she always wanted me to be at all of her 12 week courses. And she did a number of 12 week courses. So during those 12 week courses, I would do these morning pages. It's, it's, it's sort of her signature technique. Yeah. And you just, it's three, eight and a half by 11 inch pages. And you just write, you know, you don't pick up your pen except to change pages. And, uh, and I know that when I would do it, I would have insights and stuff, but then the course would be over and pretty soon I'd let it go. And I did this a number of times because she gave, t- taught a number of classes at, at Unity. And then uh, she put out a book. She's, she's published over 40 books, but one of her recent books a few years ago um, was on, uh, I think it was on creativity or something. Anyway, I started reading the book and she's talking about morning pages. And I think, you know, Julia, you talk about morning pages in all of your books, but that particular writing on morning pages, it just grabbed me in a way my talking to her or going to her courses hadn't. And so I became a, a very committed to doing the morning pages. So what what was it about that, that um, book? What was it that kind of grabbed you? Well, the book is called the artist's way. And um, it's sort of like, I think of it as a brain dump. You know, you've got all this stuff that's going on. So you pick up the pen and you just start dumping it out on the pages, you know? And, and I find that I would have insights, you know, I'd be writing all of a sudden, Oh, I didn't know I knew that. Yeah. It was kind of interesting. Yeah. And um, so I found it as a great way to really clean my mind out, you know, to clear my mind for the day. And also as a way of, of uh, learning stuff about myself and having insights and suddenly coming up with, you know, whether it was a sermon idea or a um, uh, just some ideas. Oh, suddenly it would just come out of me that because I, I think I was clearing it out yeah. so I could have this awareness. I'm going to ask you a big question, Brendalyn. Um, <laughs> so, um, so I mean, from, from what you s- described, you know, it was a, the morning pages was a way for you to kind of cultivate that, uh, that 
wisdom, that insight bit. Mm-hmm. Um, so what would you say is insight? That's a big question. Oh, what's insight? Well, to me, it's about awareness, uh, self-awareness, so that suddenly I will um, realize something about myself that I didn't know. Yeah. You know, it suddenly becomes revealed to me. Uh, Julia tells the story about one woman who was writing morning pages, and every day she was writing about her drinking of alcohol. And uh, somebody said they think I have a problem with drinking. And she would just keep writing about it every day, and then one day she realized she was an alcoholic. Yeah. So that would be a real big insight for someone to have. Yeah. So did, did, you know, it's like just knowing something about your, having an awareness of something about yourself that you didn't previously know would be and, the way I decide. Just and would you it. say uh, it's always about yourself or, or, or do you get insights into other things or inspirations or hmm. something that comes out of you? Well, I do know I get other inspirations. I don't know if you can have insight about somebody else. Okay. Maybe I could have... Um, uh, a certain, maybe a deeper understanding of something, Yeah, you know, like, uh, okay, I'll give you an example. I was, um, one of my inner fam- inter- internal family system parts that I'm dealing with is my penny pincher okay. that's afraid to spend money. And the other day I was writing and all of a sudden I realized that my father was also afraid to spend money. And I'd never realized that before because I knew he was very tight and not generous at all with his money, but he lived paycheck to paycheck. That's the way I was raised. Whereas I have really made a substantial financial uh, investments and stuff so that I'm very secure financially. I'm not independently wealthy, but I'm very financially secure. And so I'm exploring that part because now my challenge is I've saved all this money. I've, been able to take care of myself. I don't have to depend on anybody else, but now I'm, I don't want to spend it because I've got some kind of block. And so when I was writing about it the other day, I've suddenly, I um, realized that, Oh, my dad was also afraid to spend money yeah. in a different, totally different context. But somehow that was what was behind him. Not being willing, you know, one of my funniest stories about my dad was uh, money was I, uh, we lived on the Air Force Base and we had a base exchange and prices were really good, but they carried top of the line stuff. So I wanted a bathing suit and Janssen was the brand that they carried. And um, now this was in the 60s. Okay. So my dad gave me four dollars to go to the exchange and buy a bathing suit. Well, the cheapest bathing suit was $8. Oh, gosh. So I came home and I said, do you want me to get the top or the bottom? (laughs) And he grabbed his wallet real quick and gave me the other $4. (laughs) (laughs) Um, so were you always kind of ballsy? Um, have you always been that way? <laughs> well, one of the things I also inherited from my dad was his sense of humor. Yeah. You know, he, he had a great sense of humor and he always liked to tell jokes and make people laugh and stuff like that. So I seem to have this natural, um, you know, 
And I'm a seven on the Enneagram and sevens like to have fun, you know, and if yeah. we, if it's not fun, we don't do it, you know, so that's, <laughs> it's all sort of tied together. Yeah. Oh, that's lovely. Um, and in terms of the mindfulness, um, you know, work you do with people, um, you know, are you working with a particular group of people at the moment on certain issues? Well, I have, um, you know, I am retired, yeah. but I've started calling myself self-employed, but I'm part-time self-employed because I don't want to fill up my, I don't want a 40 hour a week job. So right now I think I have, um, I don't know, four or five clients yeah. that I meet with regularly. And by regularly, I mean generally once a month. Yeah. Okay. Cause that's the spiritual direction model is you meet with somebody once a month. Yeah. And then I just picked up, um, two new clients that want to do weekly for a while. So I'll probably do the unified mindfulness eight week thing to yeah. get them really trained in that. But they are also want me to do the, um, you know, spiritual direction and yeah. if necessary counseling. So what I generally do is I mix it all together, yeah. you know? So if there is an, and if I, if probably if I go into like a counseling role, I sort of let them know, okay, I'm going into counseling role right now because yeah. a spiritual director never, um, uh, a spiritual director just listens and asks questions. Yeah. So sometimes I may switch over to a counselor role. Um, and then, you know, whenever, depending on what's up for the person, I start doing the mindfulness and I'll ask them to find them, the feelings they're having, you know, to feel in and find it in the body. And I help them process the feeling. Yeah. So, so it's, it's not a strictly mindfulness teacher role that I find myself in. Because you mentioned to be about, um, you know, working with people with eating and with urges and, and cravings. Um, okay. I'm turning off my notifications for some reason. I did it beforehand, but they're back on. Okay. Um, well, that's a new area for me. Um, okay. It's not a new area in my life because I've struggled with food my whole um, adult life. Yeah. After being twiggy skinny until through high school. Yeah. And uh, so I finally have started understanding Shenzhen's, what he calls the meditative method. Okay. For overcoming addictions and compulsions. Yeah. And so I just did something for immersion, the, the free um, UM retreat that we do once a year. And I just signed up and on November 11th, I'm going to do it as a home practice program. Okay. Wow. And uh, I was hoping Nick would be able to join me, but he's uh, on another retreat that weekend. So, yeah. so I'm going to be really sharing what took me so long to understand, uh, from Shenzhen's video yeah. of overcoming addictions and compulsions and helping people. And really I have to credit Stephanie Nash. Um, she's one of Shenzhen's students and, you know, she taught me this thing about urge. Yeah. And you can use it not only for food, but for anything, any yeah. urge and you become aware of the urge and you gain, um, you sit with it until you have equanimity with it. And then, uh, like if it's food, if it was, this, you know, my, my tea, then I would hold it up in front of me and 
you know, be aware of the urge, where the urge is in my body, you know, until I, and for me, I always have the sigh tells me I have equanimity. And then I would bring it closer and see if the urge came back and again, stay with it. Yeah. And, uh, and then eventually get to the point, like if it was food, I would smell it and, yeah. and everything and get equanimity with that before taking the bite or the sip. Yeah. And that was really a big game changer for me because suddenly I saw how I could use that as my meditative way yes. of dealing with any urges. And the first, she said to me after she taught it to me about food, she said, now you may find this comes up throughout your day that you have a lot of different urges. Yeah. And the first one was, uh, it was in the winter, it was very cold. And I was taking my little Tibetan terrier out to the Arroyo for her morning walk. And I realized how, I was had this urge for her to hurry, you know, that she wasn't going <laughs> fast enough. Yeah. And so I went, oh, you know, uh, you know, a growth opportunity here. So I, I, I just, I just said, oh, okay, you know, this is an urge, and I focused on it, found it in my body, I let it come to equanimity, and then I thought, wow, this is her joy time. Yes. Look at how happy she is. She's sniffing all this stuff. She's just having a really great time. So that was an insight. Yeah. yeah. An insight. Yeah. Well, I guess that was kind of about her, but it was my insight that I hadn't noticed it before. Right. Yes. Yeah. Of how much joy she got out of that. Yeah. And then I, um, I just, it was like now when she takes her time, I have a lot more, you know, equanimity with it unless yeah. I've got an appointment and she's <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, the opportunities are there everywhere, yeah. you know, whether it's I, an urge to, Oh, to binge on Netflix, you know, that's another yeah. one I get to work yeah. with. Yeah. yeah. I, I like um, how you phrase it. Oh, it's growth time. Um, <laughs> because um, I think, um, you know, that that's one of the things that I do and I'm sure other uh, meditators do in terms of, oh, here's an opportunity where I can apply uh, my practice to working with, uh, you know, what whatever um, things coming up. Um, and we get those those uh, moments where, you know, making it practical, um, testing, okay, does mindfulness work? How can I increase my skills? So um, I love the phrase, it's growth time. Well, you, well, you know, I don't know if y'all have this term in the UK, but um, we call it AFCO. No, okay. And the well, F doesn't, you can imagine what the F stands for. Okay. It's, it's another growth opportunity. Okay. Oh, okay. Yeah. So this, this guy in the congregation told me about this probably, you know, 15, 20 years ago. And that next Sunday I got up and I said, oh, I learned a new um, acronym this week. It's called AFCO. And I saw him, his eyes went the size of saucers. He, he couldn't believe I was going to say it in church. And I said, it stands for another frustrating growth, growth opportunity. <laughs> but, but now that I'm in um, with UM, I'm calling it another equanimity opportunity. Oh, that's a great yeah, yeah, another opportunity to practice equanimity. Yeah. 
Um, so we're coming to the end of the podcast, uh, Brenda Lynn. Um, so what's what's uh, what's the on the horizons of the inner work that you're doing uh, for yourself and uh, for the future? Any any projects and anything that's on the horizon? Well, I'm developing this mind the eat. I call it mind the eating gap. You can appreciate that term from the from yeah. the underground, right? Mind the gap. And there's yes. all these gaps that happen before we eat, while we're eating, and even after we finish eating that we need to be mindful of. So I'm, I'm working on developing that as a, the home practice program, which I'll be doing in November. And I'm also going to an internal family systems therapy conference in Denver uh, the end of this month. And I'm going to be taking their online training that it's so hard to get into their training. It's a lottery. Okay. And I've applied 12 times and not wow. gotten selected. So I'm going to do their online version. And because I really want to, I think it's the most, I've been a therapist for since 1990. And to me, it's one of the most powerful modes of therapy I've ever experienced. Okay. So I want to really be able to incorporate that. And it works so well with unified mindfulness Yeah. in terms of finding the part in the body, you know, and talking to it and that sort of thing. Yeah. You know what I, one of the things that really inspires, uh, you know, which I think it's inspirational about you, Brendan, is that you're always developing yourself, um, you know, better yourselves and you're gaining the tools um, and through that internal transformation, you know, you're using that to, to be able to help people. I think that's uh, very admirable. Thanks. I just wonder if there'll ever be a time when there's nothing left to work on, you know? <laughs> I guess at that point we there's, there's always something, isn't it? Um, yeah. You know, we're always um, trying to, to better ourselves. Mm -hmm. um, so um, just to let the viewers know that um, you can find Brendalyn uh, on her website, uh, coachableu.org, uh, but there'll be details, um, um, you know, uh, from the podcast uh, about the home practice programs and the other things she's doing. So, anyway, Brendalyn, thank you very much uh, for joining me on the podcast. No, oh, thanks for inviting me. It's been fun. Mm -hmm.